Hello and welcome to the second part of this Read All About It Extra podcast in sports books with me, Paul Cuddihy, and sports writer Hugh McDonald. In part one, we discussed a biography of American football coach Vince Lombardi, the baseball book The Summer of 49 by David Halberstam, Million Dollar Baby by FX O'Toole, The Miracle of Castle de Sangro by Joe McGuinness, and Robin Jenkins' brilliant football novel The Thistle and the Grail. And coming up in part two, Hugh and I discuss golf, the beautiful game, the not-so-beautiful game, some more boxing, and the competitive world of crazy golf. We are on to book six of this Read All About It podcast extra with me, Paul Cuddy, and Hugh McDonald. It's another one of my book choices, Hugh. It's a book called The Beautiful Team in Search of Kelly in the 1978 Brazilians. And this was a book written by a guy called Gary Jenkins, who was 12 at the time of the 1970 World Cup, when Brazil, of course, dazzled the world, culminating in that wonderful 4-1 victory over Italy in the World Cup final. And he sets out to kind of find, I think at the time when he writes the book, Pelle is the sports minister in the Brazilian government. So he's obviously, he's the visible one. But, you know, some of these guys who created history that played the beautiful game, you know, really gave it its definition who just wore that iconic yellow jersey and just finding what happened to them in that kind of post-famous era. And it's, again, it's a great book. It's a, it's a book about his quest to, to find these guys who were obviously heroes for him. I think even for, so I was only about four at the time of that World Cup, but even having subsequently watched it, you know, it's something that's ingrained in you. You know, that great goal that Carlos Alberto scores is just probably the greatest goal ever scored and it's interesting that the, even in the introduction he talks about how at the time it was viewed as that final was maybe the battle for football soul between the flamboyant Brazilians the Italians of Catanaccio which again for me is a Celtic support <laughs> the 67 European Cup final where it was the Catanaccio of Inter Milan which had done well before against the, the pure beautiful inventive football of Jockstein Celtic Shamefully, I haven't read this book, but it is on my list. And I see Listen, shamefully... I've said, to, I've said to Chris Dolan in his podcast that when he says that to me, I'll, I'll put him on a wee... I'll have a wee... Because that'll be Hugh McDonald box and I'll put that one in for you. <laughs> uh, because the, the reason it's shame is I don't have shame about a lot of books I haven't read because you can't read everything, right? But this book should be so much up my alley because that was my first World Cup, really. I was 15, Paul. And we had got a colour telly into the house, right? This was our first colour television. And funnily enough, we never really had television in our house for a variety of reasons. But this big colour television came in from radio rentals or wherever and took up half the living room. And I was football daft, of course. But this was the first World Cup that, as a young teenager, I could sit down and watch. And I watched it all. And when I say I watched it all, I mean I watched it all. And that, to me, is the... Now we talk about great teams in our lives. Uh, that team is, is certainly the greatest international team of my life. You know, I could almost, I could almost go through 1-11 now. I could, I could explain goals. I could, I could go through the whole the run to the final. Pele, by the way, just being one of the great players on the team, and the greatest player on the team, of course, but surrounded by sheer genius. So I'm, I'm ganting to read that book. It's interesting in the book, and again, I think some of the, the best teams, whether it's club or international level, what they do 
is they learn from their mistakes. So, for mm-hmm. example, later years, France, you know, they remember they, they just narrowly missed it. I think mm-hmm. it was the 94 World Cup. Bulgaria scored a last-minute goal and the partner yeah. Out the back of that, they've completely restructured their football. Lo and behold, they win the World Cup and then they win the European mm-hmm. Championship. Brazil, I think, were still having won 58 and 62. They were still smarting after what happened to them in 66. And when mm-hmm. it came around to 1970, there was almost a kind of, it was almost like a military camp that they... Uh. And the players all bought into it. So it was very mm. disciplined in terms of training with the ball, with the fitness, their diet, you know, which again, mm. you're talking about 50 years ago. And as a result, it worked. And the only thing is you're reading that and you think, well, it worked for them then. Why didn't they just carry that on for, for 74? And because it used to be something about, I just always felt if, if Brazil played well and did well in the World Cup, it was a good World Cup because it was just absolutely joyful about the way they played football and that's been diluted I suppose as a lot of players have now gone and played in, in Europe but at the time because most of the players were all homegrown and played in Brazil they weren't known to us and then suddenly they, they produced this type of football that you're thinking wow where did that come from? Well that was, see, that was one of the great things I always talk about this to people nowadays young people nowadays and the, the visibility of football now you know to go off a wee tangent I saw 1979 I saw Maradona at Hamden. Now, Maradona was a rumour. That was all before he came to Hamden for us because we didn't watch Argentine football on the television because there was none. There was no YouTube, you know, there no live football generally at all. So you, you had to go, I even going back to one of the greatest players I've seen at Celtic Park, Rivera, who I saw there in 69. He was a rumour as well. You didn't see Italian football. You just know that Gianni Rivera was a great player because it was in the, but you didn't know how he played or anything like that. So you went along to a match and that was your first time of seeing a player. So the World Cup was full of that as well. I mean, the World Cup was, everybody knew about Pele. Of course we did. And we had seen Pele in 62 and, and grainy black and white in 58 and we'd seen him getting booted out at the World Cup in 1960, by, uh, particularly by Portugal. So we knew him, but we didn't know of Revolino or of Jorginho or Gerson or Tostal, Codualdo. All these players were just like complete and utter mysteries to us. And a lot of them were 26 and 27 at the peak of their career. And that was the fabulous thing about it. It was just like this thing bursting on your screens fully formed. And I think, again, you know, mentioning that fourth goal they scored against Italy, mm. that is just a thing of beauty. Absolutely, and it's also the, the great, I don't know if the book mentions it, but it's this fantastic fluid move, which you think is kind of like improvised, completely improvised, and it's not. There was a tactical move to bring Jarazino from the right-hand side in, drawing Facchetti in so that there was space on the outside, uh, on the right wing for Alberto to, to bomb into it. Because Facchetti obviously would have vacated that area. So there was an actual, amongst all this beautiful run by Claude Aldo, the, the clever play by uh, Revelino, playing it to Pelli, who pays him was measured pass in the world, which is followed by the most stunning strike. There is still a tactical basis behind it. You know, there is a, there's a plan to all this mayhem. I think as well, the book, um, and I think you would really enjoy it because it's going back, you know, like players who were at the, the height of their, their athletic power and, and the fame that, that came with that, what happens to them after it and yeah. how they adjust to that, what their lives are now. And I think that's, that's what's the really fascinating thing about it. And I think, as I say, I think you would really enjoy the book. Yeah, I've, I've actually got it on my list, you know. Um, it's there to be read. 
I actually saw it in a charity shop once and I was just about to buy it and for the life of me, I don't know why I did, but did somebody come in and I talked to him and I always regretted it because I went back to the charity shop. It was in the one next thing, so Ox Farm, one next to the old St. Paul's in, in Exchange Square and I wasn't there, you know, <laughs> so I'd missed my chance. That's a fatal book buyer's mistake. Always, uh, always buy when you see. That's <laughs> it, uh, we're going to stick with football for your next book choice, and it's a book by Eamon Dunphy, and it's only a game, The Diary of a Professional Footballer. This was the most, I think this is probably the most revolutionary book in sports publishing in Britain. If you had to go to a moment, well before Fever Pitch and all, if you had to go to a moment and say sports publishing or sports uh, writing concerning sporting participants has changed, this would be the book you would go back to. This is the mother load because Eamon Dumphy has written a book about what it is to be a football player and what it is to be a football player for Millwall in what was then the old second division, which is now the championship. And to let younger readers understand, football biographies were generally, they were, you know, they were just very, very bland. There would be a, you know, the footballers would be recalling their careers. They'd be very modest and oh, I got lucky by scoring that hat trick. They'd have a chapter about the 11 best players that they played with. Uh, they would cover perfunctory coverage of the great games they'd played in. No backbiting, no criticism, no pointing of fingers. Dunphy changed all that. Dunphy rails against life. He rails against getting dropped. He, he tells what it's like in a dressing room, how, you know, what guys aren't working hard, how the heads go down. There's fantastic little episodes in it. He goes up to, to play Middlesbrough, who won the, the second division that year. And in Middlesbrough, middle two are Bobby Murdoch and Graham Souness. And, and he talks about, you know, just getting completely played off the park by these two. And uh, it's just full of, it's like the gritty side of football. And now most football biographies, not like your Keens, even like you know Peter Crouch, which isn't gritty, but is kind of revelatory about things, or, or Paul Lake, or Matt Jansen, or whatever. There's a, the whole oeuvre now, a, a genre of football biographies, which are trying to tell some kind of truth and try to reveal some kind of uncomfortable stuff. That all started with Dumphy, and I don't think it's been better. Because I suppose, because a lot of times... I think football biographies, books can fall into the two categories of, as you say, some books trying to be honest and truthful and other books just get through the, the motions. And Tony Cascarino's, for example, is, is probably yeah. one of the best autobiographies I've ever read because it's it's brutally honest and he's, he's yes. absolutely brutal about himself. But I, I think even the way, I think Dave Dunphy had written it as a diary of a season. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if he'd, again... I think even footballers now, I don't think they'd be able to do it as they were playing because I don't know what the fallout politically would be that if you're telling the story of what happened at your club in the course of a Absolutely. season. Absolutely. It has to be when you've drawn a line under that. And Cascarino's book is an absolute classic as well, but it was, it was ghosted by Paul Kimmage, uh, whose who's own work has, would have... He slips off my very tight shortlist because he was a cyclist and he wrote a book called Rough Ride and it was about life as um, a cyclist, and he is very indicative of, is, there's a very uh, dumpy theme in Rough Ride because Kimmage is accused of what a cyclist called spitting in the soup. That is, he tells the inside story of what it is to be a cyclist and reels at the public, not least the use of drugs in the sport. Uh, so he was kind of ostracised from that. 
uh, from Cyclone because of that, or certain elements of Cyclone. So Dumphy, Dumphy's book is one of those that makes it, everything that comes after it, of that kind of confessional or what's and all thing, owes something to Dumphy. It's interesting, he's a very divisive figure in, in Ireland just now, because he obviously is, he's very opinionated and, and quite often in a very negative way. And I think certainly, I know, he's, I know Roy Keane's not a big fan of his, um, oh. and I don't think, I think, I think Roy Keane wrote one of his autobiographies with Roddy Doyle, and Roddy Doyle, Doyle. Roddy Doyle is not a big fan of Eamon Dunphy and vice versa either. Uh, no, because the first autobiography, Keane's first one, was written by Dunphy. His first one, you know, right, Keane's right, done too. Right. Uh, and uh, the first one has got the Alf, Inga, whatever it is, episode in it, which ended up costing Roy a large amount of money uh, to settle, I think, with the character. But certainly to meet a disrepute charge from the FA. But Dunphy is quite open about the animosity towards my interview once he wrote a biography, which is goes yeah, the Rocky Road, I think it's called. But anyway, I interviewed him on the back of that. And he was talking about the, the hotel he drank and how he had to factor in time to get to the television studio. And I said, but surely just come out. I know the hotel he's talking about is one in the centre of Dublin. I says, there's a taxi ride outside here. So you just jump out and get a taxi. He says, no, no, no. He says, he says, I've got to go down the taxi and I to get somebody who will take me. <laughs> he says, the first four or five will tell me to F off. He says, I'll eventually get to one that will take me. And he's a really volatile, really restless character. You know, even interviewing him, he's all over the shop, you know, really volatile. And you know, he would um, he terrible, huge fallouts with Ireland during the Jack Charlton regime because Dumphy's one of these uh, beautiful game purveyors and Jack Charlton was just a blasphemy to him. Um, certainly, it's a, I think any time you ever read any lists of football books that you should read, I think only a game's always uh, included on that. We're going to switch uh, sports now and for my next book, and it's a book about golf, it's called Four Iron in the Soul by Lawrence Donegan. And it basically charts his year of being a caddy to Ross Drummond on the European tour. And I think it's, it's an absolutely brilliant book. I mean, I was a big fan of Lawrence Donegan even before I started reading his work because mm. he was the bass player on two of my favourite bands in the 80s, the Bluebells and then Lloyd Cole and the Commotions. And he, and he also loves the Celtic as well, which, which helps. But um, as a writer, I think he's written some brilliant books and he really gets, he becomes integral to the book you know he wrote a book California Dreaming about being a used car salesman in America he wrote a book uh, I think it's called No News at Fort Lake where he went and worked in a, a, a local newspaper in Donegal he's got a real really really brilliant style and I think this book again like all the best sports books it's not just about sport it's about the characters within it what the sport does to people and how they react and how you know either as competitors but also as spectators as people on the well caddies are an integral part of it but in the periphery you know that they're there and I think it captures that absolutely beautifully and it's it's a book I think again between the lines of the podcast with them and it's, it's stayed in print for years and years I think it's about 20 years since it's been published interest the one interesting thing again from that podcast they spoke to Martin Gregg and the time he said he was given a forty thousand pound advance, and I think he was surprised at the time because he was a, a Galgen writer, but it wasn't like mm. top level. Mm. But I thought, wow, if, I think any writer now, if they were given that sort of advance, they would uh, they think they'd won the lottery. Yeah, I mean, advances then were were huge. The great thing about Lawrence is is that 
diversity of career, you know, being a bass player in a great band or great bands. You know, the guy who's on top of the pops is also writing about the masters or the guy who's on top of the pops and writing about the masters is actually carried, carried a bag or, or on a European tour. The thing that I always think about Lawrence and I always admire about him, uh, apart from his writing, he's a, you know, he's an excellent writer. But what I've liked about him is he's kind of like his, his sheer bravery. He just, he's just like, he just picks up and does things, you know what I mean? And then he just dumps things and he moves on and he just says, so you know how sometimes we've got this kind of Scottish cringe? Well, I certainly can have it as well, but I'm very much a safety man and you know, what about this and what about that? And I'll just do this and I've got a nice... Lawrence has just like dumped things and moved on to things. You know, being a car salesman, being a journalist in Donegal, being a golf caddy, being a bass player. And I think the that comes through in his book because there's really spiky episodes in the book which I really laugh at where, where Lawrence is actually telling a, a, a tour professional how to play golf, you know, and that's very Lawrence. You know, that, that kind of bluntness and frankness. And I think as well, great sports books, what they do to people is we want to peek behind the curtain, Paul. You know, we want is what's it like to be a professional footballer? What's it like to be a professional golfer? And see if you pull that a bit aside, it draws me in immediately. It really draws me in immediately. Uh, so, yeah, that was another book that would in another day would have been on my shortlist. Yeah, his very first, very first uh, paragraph reads, the first thing to understand about caddying is that it's not brain surgery. It is more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And what I, like, what I really liked about the book is, because he is central to the book and he's, he's completely ingrained in the story, but I think, I think he's quite self-deprecating in terms of uh. it as well, that he actually, because I think that's, that must be a difficult balance in that, because although people can engage with the character, you know, like so Ross Drummond, who's the mm. author that he's caddying for, but if you don't engage with the author himself, it's his voice and he's telling you the story, then the book falls down. And I think the reason why it works so brilliantly is because it's funny, but it's insightful as well. And you really do, I think you engage with him as a writer. I think he's a really, really good writer. And again, on that podcast, it was interesting. That he kind of felt he, he, hadn't, he hasn't done a book for, for a while. And he's he kind of almost like, was my first idea my best idea? Or like, your, you know, is your first album your best album yeah. for an artist? And, I'd like to think that he would write again because I think there's real talent and quality in, in what he does. Absolutely. And I think that that thing about you talking about self-deprecation and is that honesty because he actually puts himself in places where he's are say, for God's sake, Lawrence, what a prat you are here. What, you know, what are you doing here? And he just relays it. He doesn't protect himself at all. You know, he just, because there's times you say, oh, for God's sake, what are you saying? You know. What he's got in the background, because I follow him on Twitter, and, 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 and obviously I knew him when he was on the road for golf, and admired his, his writing there. He's got in the back burner this novel about Shergar, and every now and again I, I poke a stick into Twitter to give him a jab and say, when am I getting my Shergar book? Because uh, I think it'll be a fictionalised book, of course, because of uh, so much going around the Shergan story. But I really love to read uh, Lawrence, Donegan, uh, Lawrence Donegan's novel on Shergar. Well, certainly if, if and when Lawrence is reading this, hopefully that just gives him the wee G up from you to complete it. Um, certainly Four Island the Soul, I think, for anybody. And again, like, I think the theme of these books is it's the quality of the writing, that regardless of whether you like golf or not, then I, I would defy him you not know, to, to read that and, and not love it as a, as a book and, and about the characters within it. 
we started uh, with a boxing book, and for you, we're going to end with a boxing book. And you know, I, I, I said that you know, and somebody did say on one of the podcasts, you are the doyen of, of Scottish sports writing. Hugh McIlvanny is, you know, he's got to be, he's got to be up there with you. <laughs> just, I mean, just be mentioned the same sentence it embarrasses me. I think he, with McIlvanny, I was, uh, I would say that I think he was the best British journalist, full stop. Um, of that whole era and by goodness there was a lot of great journalists of that era you can go through all things Nicholas Tomlinson you know you can go through, through um, James Cameron you can go through the polemics of John Pilger you can go Keith Waterhouse's colleagues you could go right on uh, right through but I think McIlvanny was the greatest journalist of his age and that was an age that encapsulated the you know the when journalism was in its prime, when you could, when a sports editor could come out to you and say, right, you're going to Venezuela on Saturday to cover an alley fight, and you packed your bag and you went, and uh, that's what he did. I've chosen him in boxing because he's written three volumes, I think they're all published at one time by mainstream, uh, but they'll be out there for you. Michael Vanny on racing, Michael Vanny on football, Michael Vanny on boxing, unreservedly recommend all three but boxing in particular because it just suited his his character the ambivalence of boxing suited him that violence with sophistry and sophistication at times suited him personally it was a profound enough subject for him to disappear into and of course he became friendly with Muhammad Ali you know so he was literally the great anecdote of Michael Vanny is that after the rumble in the jungle, Michael Vanny and Ken Montgomery say to themselves, uh, Ken Jones, sorry, say to themselves, what are we going to do for a follow-up? And they say, why don't we go out to Ali's villa and see if he's up for talking? He'll be full of adrenaline. So they, they, they march out to um, uh, his villa on the outskirts of Kampala, and Ali says, I come on in. And they sit for three hours after the greatest sporting, maybe the greatest sporting event of the century. Ali defeating this giant, you know, and uh, they sit there for years and they go outside and Michael Vanny lights his cigar and says, to, after three hours of one-to-one, two-to-one with Ali, he says out the side of his mouth, do you think there's anything in that? Which is the, the great journalistic uh, <laughs> line of the century, I would have said. Because I've read his book on football and one of the things I always enjoy about reading uh, because you can hear his voice, literally because yeah. he had quite a distinctive voice whenever you heard Absolutely. him. And so when you when you actually read him, and, you know, there's a piece in that, his book on football about Jock Steen, who, who was mm-hmm. friendly with as well. I, but I just, I love the fact when I'm reading it, I'm actually hearing his voice in my head. And mm-hmm. as you say, I think the quality of the writing is just exceptional. I mean, I can quote lines of Michael Vanny, you know, I can off the top of my head, and I can't do that many. Another thing as well, he was a great journalist, and people, you can be a great writer without being a great journalist. See, Michael Vanny knew what the story was, but he was there for the story. I mean, he was a guy that went into the dressing room of Lisbon uh, with uh, Bill Shangley, and actually heard, John, you're immortal. I mean, he was there. I mean, he was the guy who was at Ali's bedside. He was the guy when Johnny Owen died in Mexico, spent the subsequent three days with the Owen family, you know, gauging the reaction as, as their son was slipping into death. I mean, he was a journalist. He was a guy who was there for facts and figures. There's a wonderful story in the old days of him traveling down from Manchester on the, the late train 
um, after the United game and, and all the boys are having a drink in first class. These are days for mobile phones and, and somebody says to him, well, that was a great goal that Pallister scored. And he said, no, no, it was Bruce. He says, no, Bruce got the header, but Pallister got it. He, he got the last touch at the back post. And as the train stopped the crew, Michael Vanney went out and made a phone call to the desk to change it, even though he knew that getting out, that was him stuck in crew for the night. That was the last train. So he was he was getting out to, change, to make his copy, right? He wasn't going to wait till London and get it for the second edition. He was getting it for the first edition, just in case a sub had missed it. That was his precision, uh, Paul. That was his... I got to know him and... There was a time where he would phone you up on a Saturday morning and to check a bit of fact about Scottish football, you know, like, for instance, you know, what's Tom Rogic like? Or, you know, whatever, he would be checking something up. And you'd, you'd say, I sound a bit tired. He'd say, I've been writing my column, I'm not all night. And he would be in his 80s then. He'd, he'd literally, that's what he would do. He'd stay up all night honing this copy. He said, I'm just going to, he says, once the couple of queries, I think I'm going to send it and go to my bed. So that shows you that he's great, but sometimes, you know, you, you know, not sometimes, you always work, you have to work to be great, you know. It's, it's remarkable when you think, I mean, he is, as you say, the, the great journalistic voice of, of sport in the 20th century, and, and his brother was, was one of the, the, the great uh, 20th century Scottish novelists. Absolutely. And, and who knows as well, I always, I always like to say, well, who knows what his mother would have been if she hadn't had to leave. She went and worked in the mills when she was 13 or 14. And who knows what she would They used to come home. The Michael Vanny's brothers used to come home to their house in a close in Kilmarnock and creep up the stairs after dancing. And their mother would be sitting there in the lamplight uh, reading the Ruby app, you know, completely uneducated woman. So what would she have been like if she'd got the chance to, to do, uh, you know, to write as a living or to be a poet? Um, I know Willie... Even to her dying day, she died in the 90s, used to send her poetry, his poems to her, and she used to reply. Uh, so there's kind of poignancy in that, and, and a sort of working-class Scottish kind of culture, was we always, we don't know, we really don't know what we've missed. You know, all these guys maybe staying in, uh, up a, a high-rising drum chapel, or have we lost their contribution because we haven't nurtured it or given, uh, given them the possibilities to take it? And I always think that's a poignancy about the Michael Vanny family there. Well, it was uh, three book recommendations in one. So Hugh Michael Vanny on football, racing and boxing. And we're on to the last book in this podcast. And it's, I think I'm maybe slightly stretching it in terms of sports book, but this is a book called Tilting at Windmills, How I Tried to Stop Worrying and Love Sport by Andy Miller. And, what I loved about this book, I have a funny feeling, I think it was Martin Gregg again who recommended this book to me, and Andy Miller, the premise is he doesn't like, he doesn't like sport, basically. has never liked sport, has never fitted in in terms of sport when he was at school. Tries to force himself to, to go to Queen's Park Rangers, but just I, doesn't really get it. Mm-hmm. And has tried various sports, but just it's just completely it's something that's not interested in him. And somehow stumbles upon crazy golf or mini golf mm-hmm. as uh, something he decides to try. And I don't think he's got any particular great aptitude to it, but then effectively becomes, starts to get ranked in terms of UK terms and represents the UK simply by turning up at tournaments. I think if you or I just turned up one, one weekend, we'd probably end up representing the UK. He, he goes and plays for the UK at the European Championships in Latvia. does it absolutely miserably, but again, it's all about, it's about his experience no, I mean, again, as a sportsman, as it were, but just in that crazy golf world, which is crazy. And people who take it seriously and, and who practice and 
and then the joy that he has of actually winning a tournament. And at one point, he was ranked fourth in the UK, which I, again, I'm not sure really what that what that is. But it's a, a really funny book. But the one thing when I was choosing this book and I was through my whole bookcases trying to find it, and you know, sometimes I've given it away to somebody, I've loaned mm-hmm. it to somebody, never it's never returned. And you know, sometimes you read a book and you really love it, and and two things happen. One is you love it so much you you don't want to let it out of your sight because you know it's never going to come back. Or, or sometimes you're filled with a zeal of just, you want to give it to people because you feel they have to read it. And I think the latter thing happened with me. So I'm hoping somebody who's listened to this has my <laughs> can return it. I know what you mean about books, but I had I, I had the, uh, sort of a new book regime imposed on me because I moved to a one-bedroom flat and uh, I still buy a lot books and I get a lot of books to review as well and I get sent a lot of books so I've, got, I've, I've had to employ a really sort of very strict policy of one book in and one book out it's been quite uh it's almost like being ascetic like a monk you know is loving this little cell but getting you can only have so many in at a time it's been quite interesting actually because one of the things I've found is as soon as you give a book away you need it it's, that seems to be a rule in life as soon yeah. as you know if you hand over a book the next day you say, where's my copy of Great Expectations? And you say, oh, yeah, I gave it to somebody yesterday, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Well, but as I say, when I read this book, and I, and I love the idea of somebody, you know, me reading it as somebody who loves sport, and even can watch sports that I wouldn't necessarily was that interested in, but I, I love the whole, the various different aspects of sport, the competition, etc. But this was somebody coming at it from completely different, who didn't like playing sport, didn't really like watching sport. But then how in the course of the book, and then becoming involved in something that he... He suddenly takes ownership of it's, it's his thing. How that then impacts on how he does watch sport and subsequently watch Queen's Park Rangers games. And it was really interesting. So I'm, I'm gutted that I can't reread it again. Because the other book, uh, I read a book recently called The Wichita Lineman, which is basically the story of Jimmy Webb and how that song came about. And it's just the most beautiful book. And I've told people about it. And, oh, and they always say, oh, I'll, need to, I'll need to get that from you. And I'm thinking... No way. Lots of thinking, nah, you're not getting it. Uh, uh, yeah, there's certain, yet. there's certain books as well that you, you would never throw in. I've got books from my son and my daughter here that, you know, you just, they mean so much. But it's interesting that I think about, I haven't read uh, the Muller book, but the, the idea of obsession in sport is really a great theme. And, and I notice it myself, like, um, I'm of a generation that my grandfather, for example, one of my grandfathers never left Scotland, and that wasn't considered unusual. My other grandfather left Scotland once, and that was to go to Lisbon, right? And I always think that both of them, who were great football men, uh, one was a Shelton Junior supporter and one was a Celtic supporter, obviously, would be amazed at the, the, the sheer ways that our obsession has taken. Like my son and I will, almost in a whim, will fly to, and very relaxed, We'll fly to Hamburg and go and watch Dortmund v Bremen. Or we'll go to Boston to watch the Red Sox. Or we'll decide one day to fly down to London to see Spurs v Villa. Uh, you know, that kind of that obsession, not only being there, but being football now. Well, not now, actually, but before CV, being so easy to access and it's so reasonable. You'd think that the obsession, you know, would be limited to maybe one or two people, but there's actually sort of Dortmund supporters clubs in Scotland. If you fly to a Dortmund game, there'll be other Dortmund supporters from Scotland flying to it, no matter what game you're going to. That obsession just, you know, just being very deep and very almost universal. 
we'll go back to you know what we're saying. I think we were talking about the thistle and the grail. We certainly, in the current circumstances, hope that, that we can get back to that again because it's uh. you know obviously it's an integral part of sport. But it's, it's an integral part of so many people's lives that you want to have that interaction with the sport. Absolutely. I mean, it's so vital to, you, you know, when I talk about my, my life and my kids, uh, for example, and I've been so blessed to, to spend so much time with them. But there'll be, you know, a lot of the high moments will be like, we went to Stirling Albion when their kids were lived in Stirling. And I remember those days so fondly and they, they had a hinterland with the whole family. You know, that's a shared history that we had. If Ali and I are ever talking, you'll say, remember that day in Bielefeld in Germany when it was just, it just didn't stop raining and we were watching Armenia Bielefeld versus Hanover. And you go, you know, what, what was that all about? You know, that, well, you know, we flew to Hamburg, we got a train to um, Bremen, then we got another train to Bielefeld to watch Armenia Bielefeld v Hanover. What's going on there? You <laughs> know? Sadly, we've, we've come to the end of this podcast. I'm absolutely sure that we have given people plenty of book recommendations. And I think if you and I did this podcast again tomorrow, we could pick 10 different equally. Absolutely. 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 There's so many that have fallen off the list. I could do, I could do, you know something, I could do 10 on most sports, just on sports. I might take you up on that at one point. <laughs> you know where I am. <laughs> absolutely. And you know where I am. <laughs> well listen thanks as always it's always a complete joy talking to you about books and, and, and sport here great thank you I love it I love talking I love talking about books but it's good to talk about sports books in particular because I think at one time they were a really neglected thing in Britain Paul and now they're not you know and I think that's a great thing absolutely well, and that's a good point to end the podcast thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it you can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.